All right. Hey, now uh, I've got one special partnership uh, person, uh, couple to introduce. And the reason they're special is because I skipped over their name. All right. Uh, and so we're going to have them stand up and turn around. This is Spencer and Elizabeth Kelly. So where are they? Wait at the back right here. Yeah, stand up. Wave. Yeah. So you are our partners of the month for this month. And uh, it's good that you met them because they're going to be up here on our worship team helping us lead worship pretty soon. So I'm excited to introduce them. So anyway, uh, anyway, we're going to jump into a time of teaching. So if you're here uh, for the very first time, again, welcome. But also inside your program is a green and white message note sheet. We use every week. And so you'll definitely want to pull that out because you'll be using it today. And if you guys are all set and ready to go, we're going to jump in. You guys ready to go? God, we're just excited to be here and to be continuing this journey as we, we uh, study sent into the danger and what it looks like when you lead us, call us into new unfamiliar territory. And as we talk today about how you shift us, change us, uh, move us through paradigm shifts in our life that are designed to change us and set us free, I pray that you would set us free all over this place. God, I just pray that chains would be broken. I pray that eyes would be open. Um, I pray that new paradigms would emerge, that we'd have a better understanding of who you are, the way you work in our life, and the way transformation works in a practical way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we are continuing this series that we've been in the last many weeks now called Sent Into the Danger. And for those of you who are brand new at Rocky Peak, this is actually, think of it like the second season in a long-running series uh, that's a study based on the New Testament book of Acts. Now, the book of Acts is one of the most important books in the Bible, and in it, uh, Luke, our author, chronicles the early movement of Jesus, how it starts off in Jerusalem with just a few hundred believers right after the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, how it rapidly grows in the next 6, 12, 18 months to like thousands. We're talking 5, 10, 15,000 believers, but then because of the rapid growth, uh, there is increased persecution. And because that, it drives these early Christ followers out of Jerusalem into the surrounding areas. It forces the apostles, the leaders, to go underground. But now we've come into a new season of peace the last couple of weeks. And so now one of the, 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 one of the key leaders of the early movement, Peter, the apostle Peter, is able to come out of hiding. And he's able to start moving around these surrounding counties around Jerusalem, sharing the message of Jesus, strengthening the believers. And today we come to one of the most important events literally in church history. I mean, I'm not just blowing this out of proportion, like this is one of the most important events that happens in the movement of Jesus, uh, not only in the early church, but like ever, it affects us today. And so if you have your Bibles, let's open them up to chapter 10 of Acts. If you've got your apps, let's go ahead and open them and turn them on. There in your note sheets, a section called Two Visions, One Paradigm. So Acts 10, we're going to pick it up right at verse 1. Now let me set the stage. Last week, we ended the story with um, Peter. He was at the city of Joppa. Remember, he had just uh, raised a woman from the dead named Tabitha. And we saw that he went to stay with a, a friend there, a Christ follower named Simon the Tanner, a leather worker. So he's in Joppa, modern-day Jaffa, a uh, suburb of Tel Aviv today, seacoast. The story doesn't start there today. That's where, where Peter is. The story starts 30 miles to the north. Uh, in one of the major cities of the Roman Empire, fifth largest city, the city of Caesarea. For those who've been there recently, kind of picture that the Hippodrome, the theater, and so on. And so, uh, so anyway, what's going to happen is that God is going to show up and appear. The angel is going to appear 
to a man named Cornelius. Now, Cornelius is a Roman military officer. He's a centurion, which means he oversees about 100 soldiers. So he's a tough Roman soldier, but he loves God. He's not a Jew. He's a Gentile. But as many Gentiles in the ancient world, we saw this back in chapter 8, by the way, with the the Ethiopian eunuch, um, is that many Gentiles were fed up with the traditional gods, you know, Zeus and, uh, you know, Hermes and all that, and their escapades. And so they were drawn to the word of God. They were drawn to the God of Israel. So they had not converted to Judaism. That would require you being circumcised, obey all the Jewish laws. They hadn't done that, but they would often attend synagogue and kind of live like a Jew, uh, study the word of God. That's who Cornelius is. He's an he's a honorable man. He's seeking God. And uh, an angel is going to show up, which is not common. We often think in the Bible, oh, angels happen all the time. It's not common. It only happens seven times in 30 years in Acts at, mid- at critical points. And, uh, and so he's going to appear to Cornelius with, with a message. All right? So that's where we're going to pick up the story. So in uh, verse 1, so at Caesarea, uh, you can see it there in your map, there was a man named Cornelius. He's a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout. They're God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. So he's living out his faith. And uh, one day, it's about 3 in the afternoon. Now, the Jews would pray at 9, 12, and 3 every day. Those are the Jewish times of prayer. So he's praying. It's about 3. And he has a vision. And he distinctly sees an angel of God who comes to him and says, Cornelius. Now, he looks at him and he reacts just the way you and I would do if we went home and went to pray at 3 o'clock and this happened to us today. He freaks out, right? It's like Mr. Clean, you know, all bright, white, and uh, scary. And so he says, um, uh, what he, Cornelius stares at him in fear. And he says, uh, what is it, Lord? And the angel answered, well, your prayers and your gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering to God. Like God has paid attention. He's noticed your heart. You're seeking him. You're, you're loving him. And he says, so I want you to send, man, um, send men now to Joppa, 30 miles down the coast, and uh, bring back a man. His name is Simon. He's also called Peter. And he's staying with a man named Simon, who's a leather worker, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And so that's vision number one, right? So he calls in. Um, verse 7, he's going to call in two of his servants and a devout soldier. In other words, another Yahweh worshiper, uh, a, a God of Israel worshiper, who is one of his attendants. And he tells him everything. He tells about the vision, and he sends them on their way. So that's day one. Okay, day one. Vision, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. They start this 30-mile journey. It's going to take them all that day, part of the next day to get there. Day two, scene changes. We're going to move. This is going to be a four-day story today. Day two, uh, Peter is going to be praying. He's at the house of Simon the Tanner. It's about noon, so it's time of prayer. He's going to go up on the rooftop, balcony-like rooftop, where they would often use to, to pray or just to hang out, you know, have barbecues, whatever. So uh, he goes up to pray, and he's going to have his own vision. Now, to understand this vision, you have to understand a little bit of Peter's background. Peter is a Jew. When we as New Testament believers, whether Jew or Gentile, unless you come from like an Orthodox type background, we tend to read the New Testament through Gentile eyes. So we, need to, we tend to see Jesus as a Gentile. We tend to see Jesus, uh, the, the apostles as Gentiles. They're not. They're Jews. They've grown up as Jews. They're living as Jews. And so here's what we're going to see today. Though it's many years now after the resurrection of Jesus and he's left, Peter's still living as a Jew. He eats kosher. He's never had, think of this, one BLT his whole (laughs) life. I mean, how do you have the bratwurst without the beer, right? 
No, how did the beer that brought? Like, how, so he's never had uh, ham for a meal. Like he's eaten kosher his whole life. And in Peter's mind, this is a critical core part of following God of Israel and following Yahweh and following uh, the Messiah, Jesus the Messiah, right? So in his mind, so circumcision, yes, it's part of following God. Uh, 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 food laws, clean and unclean food, of course, that's part of following Jesus. Um, a Sabbath, yes, right, you see? So we often miss this, but as we'll see today very clearly, uh, this is Peter. And so Peter has a spiritual paradigm. And we all have spiritual paradigms, don't we? Here's who God is. Here's how, how our relationship works. Here's what he wants. Here's what he doesn't. Here's how to thrive. We all have them. Peter's got a spiritual paradigm. And in his paradigm, he believes in the Messiah, the life, death, and resurrection for our sins. But he's still living as a good Jew. And that's very much a part of his, like, what you should do in following Jesus. And today, Jesus is going to come crashing into his paradigm. And it's going to be very disturbing for Peter. It's going to be a little scary for Peter. It's going to be hard for Peter, but it's going to be critical to Peter's next step of transformation and growth and impact. And so let's see what happens. But before I do that, let me just go a little bit deeper there. I was going to just later, but I'll just now. Um, so in Peter's mindset, you've got Jews and you've got everyone else. Jews are God's people. Everyone else are the dogs, Jewish dogs. They're unclean. You don't, they don't have a relationship with God. Um, so in Peter's mind, um, Messiah comes for the Jews. Um, and so in Peter's mind, there is this huge separation. Think of it like a spiritual Berlin Wall that separates God's people from the rest of the world. And the reason that God had given Israel many of these laws in the Old Testament was to put that wall up. It was to create a separate culture. Now, why would God do that? Because he wanted to create a culture through whom he could reveal himself, reveal the path to life that wouldn't get polluted by the pagan nations, um, and, and so through whom he could bring the Messiah. But God's vision all along was that wall that God erected in the law was temporary, one day that spiritual Berlin Wall was going to come down. The whole reason for the separation was to create a people through whom Messiah could come. So then Messiah, after he comes, we could take the wall down and salvation goes to the whole world. Are you following me this? Peter doesn't get any of that yet. He doesn't understand any of that yet. And so this is going to really rack his world. It's going to really... Uh, in Israel at this time... There were three main laws that God had required of Israel that kind of separated them from the nation. They operated as what we would call today sociological boundary markers. Right? Like, so, for example, if the year is 1969, you're driving in San Francisco. You see a bus that has psychedelic drawings all over it and flowers. It's got a bumper sticker, make love, not war. There's a long-haired guy in the front rocking out to Led Zeppelin. Who is that guy? Good, three of you are alive then. Hippie, yeah. Like, I don't know, I haven't read Wikipedia. Uh, yeah, we got a hippie, right? 
These are sociological boundary markers. And if you want to be a hippie, you want to be in, you grow your hair out, you drive that bus, you put that bumper sticker, it separates you from the establishment. If you don't want to be a hippie and you don't want to be part of that, you cut your hair, you drive some other kind of car that works, uh, (laughs) you don't draw in your vehicle, right? Uh, And you don't bang your head against the wall while you listen to music. So, uh, so are you see what I'm saying? That these are, and there's all kinds of these in culture. This separates people apart. For the Jews, there were three primary sociological boundary markers that become the big issues in the New Testament of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Do you obey the law? Number one is circumcision. Number two are food laws, and number three is the Sabbath. And you study the scriptures in the New Testament over and over; those can become issues. As Christians, do we need, as new, new Christian Gentile, do we need to follow those laws or not? Right. All right, so, so this is Peter's worldview. This is his, spirit, his, his paradigm. Are you with me? If you're going to love Jesus, you love God, you're going to follow, you're going to be circumcised, you're going to follow food laws. You're gonna, he just assumes this, how he's been raised. He's, that, that paradigm's never been challenged. Today, God's going to challenge the paradigm. So here we go. So he's going to have his own vision now. So we're on day two, and about noon, the following day, as, they're up on, uh, as they were on the journey, these three men from Cornelius, they're approaching the city. Peter goes is up on the roof to pray, and he gets hungry, right? Because every time you pray, you get hungry. And, uh, and he wanted something to eat, and he's smelling. Smell the hummus. He can smell the pita bread down below. It's just coming up. Um, and, uh, and so while the meal was being prepared, he falls into a trance, right? And he's going to see heaven open. So catch that. This is clearly in Jewish thought. This is a vision from God. Heaven's being opened. Um, And something like a large sheet is being let down to the earth by four corners. Now catch this. I do not want you to picture a bed sheet. All right? Some of you got it with the elastic or not with the elastic. But um, I want you to... I want you to think, uh, top sheet or bottom sheet? Uh, I want you to think of uh, a large, think of it like a huge yacht with a huge sail. Think of it like that, like huge piece, but it's actually uh, in this vision more like linen. And uh, here's what's going to happen. He's going to see this. All of a sudden, this huge sheet comes down, and as it gets lower and lower, he's finally able to look over the edge. And when he looks over the edge, it's going to be like Genesis 1, like in a creation. It's like all the created order is going to be, except for the fish. So he's going to be four foot of animals of all kinds, uh, clean, unclean. So you're going to have pigs, but you're also going to have cows. Things like that. Uh, he's going, they're going to be uh, reptiles. There's going to be birds, right? And so it's a mixture of creation. Are you with me? All of creation. Um, and so he's going to hear a voice from Peter. And remember, he's hungry. And the voice says, rise, Peter, be a man. No, it doesn't say that. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Right? And so... He's hungry. It'd be natural to do it. And, but Peter is horrified because he sees unclean animals. And he's a Jew. He's never eaten one unclean thing in his whole life. And imagine that. That means all the years with Jesus, they ate kosher. So he's never done this before. And he says, he is appalled by this. He says, no way, Lord. Catch this, I have never eaten anything unclean my whole life. And the voice speaks a second time. I know, I get that. But don't call unclean what I have cleansed. Something is changing. Now catch this, just to make sure that Peter gets this, 
this vision, which is easy to miss this in the text, it repeats itself three times. Now, if you're just reading that in the text, it's easy to read, oh, it happened three times, just move on. But I want you to think about that. Let's visualize that. Peter's there. Take what? Rise, Peter. Kill and eat. Are you kidding, Jesus? I've never done that. I'm not starting now. Hey, don't call unclean what, I, what God's made clean. What? I don't think he's getting it. Take two. Same stuff. Rise, Peter. Kill and eat. No, Lord, I've never done that. I'm not starting now. Hey, don't call anything unclean that I've cleansed. What? Take three. Same stuff. Rise, Peter. Kill and eat. Are you kidding me? I'll never do this. Don't. You see what I'm saying? It's like three times. It's like God wants to be really clear. Number one, I'm serious. Number two, I don't want you to misunderstand. I don't want you to wonder later. Did I hear him right? And number three, when you're telling this story in the future, I don't want anyone to say, maybe you misunderstood. I got crystal clear. So let's see what happens. So he becomes hungry, and he wants something to eat. Verse 10, he falls into his trance. So he says, have an open, something like a large sheet. It's coming down to earth by four corners. It contains all kinds of four-footed animals, creation order, uh, reptiles, birds. A voice says, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean, not starting now. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. That's take one. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet that was taken to heaven. And so Peter is just, he's kind of baffled. He's like, what was that? What does that mean? That's confusing. And uh, meanwhile, down below, the three guys who started yesterday show up right now. Have you ever noticed that God's timing is impeccable? Have you ever noticed, like, that's a real coincidence? Like, we've seen this throughout Acts, but all of a sudden, just, you know, he's getting done, like, what was that? And knock, knock, knock at the gate. Hey, is there a guy named Peter who lives here? It goes by the name Simon. And um, so while he's wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men, the men sent from Cornelius found out where Simon's house was. They'd been in town asking because, you know, there's no, like, you know, Google Maps. And, uh, and they called out. So they get there in verse uh, 16, and they said, they call out and ask if Simon, who's known as Peter, was staying there. So uh, Peter's still upstairs on the roof. He's still thinking about this vision, trying to fit what it was that about. I know it's from God, but what does it mean? And I love this. The Spirit speaks to him, right? So you see this throughout Acts. So from time to time, the Holy Spirit just speaks to people. We saw it back in chapter 8 when he told the Philip, hey, run up by that chariot, stand by it. Here it happens again. Notice how specific it is. He said, Simon, three men are looking for you downstairs. Get up, go downstairs, and do not hesitate to go with them as I've sent them. Now, Peter's going to go down. And I'm sure that he, when he gets down there, you know, my, I'm almost positive. He's assuming these are Jews. I mean, Peter's a Jew, catches everyone in the movement of Jesus at this time is, are Jews. He hangs with Jews. We'll see later, he doesn't hang with Gentiles. He doesn't associate with Gentiles. He's assuming they're going to be Jews. And that's why when the Spirit said, don't hesitate to go, because they're Gentiles. And so uh, when he gets down there, he sees these three Gentiles and... Um, and he's kind of blown away with that. 
And so he says, uh, well, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? And they said, well, we've come from Cornelius. And they begin to tell their side of the story. He's a righteous man. He's a God-fearing man. He's respected by the Jewish people. Holy angel told him to come to you in this house so that he could hear what you have to say. And so Peter invited him in. And I'm sure it was a crazy conversation that night because they have a sleepover, right? So the, the next day, so now we're on day three. Uh, Peter starts out when some of the believers from Joppa, uh, some of the Christ followers, now catch this, all Jewish Christ followers, we're going to learn later in the account, he takes six Jewish Christ followers, you add him, six plus one equals seven, very good, and so we got seven witnesses, whatever's going on here, I don't want to be out there alone, and so the following day, he arrives in Caesarea, we're now in day four, so Cornelius was expecting him, he'd called together his relatives, his close friends, all his Gentile one-lives, and verse 25 as Peter enters the house, Cornelius uh, meets him, and he falls down on his feet in reverence. I mean, he doesn't know what's going on. He's just all new to him. Angel comes, man, you better honor this person. But notice what Peter says. He says, Peter made him get up, and he said, stand up. I'm only a man myself. Now, let me tell you, we're going to talk about spiritual paradigms later. And um, I just want to do a quick little sidebar here. Some of us have grown up in traditions where there's a huge difference between like pastors and priests and popes and just normal people, right? I want you to see how Peter does here. In some traditions, it's been taught that Peter is the first pope. But I want you to catch this, that Peter doesn't, doesn't say, hey, that's awesome, you're already catching on, kiss the ring. He says, get up. We're all in this thing together, right? No, there's no axe to grind there, just a teaching moment. All right, so, um, so anyway, he gets up and... Uh, uh, and he says, I'm only by myself, verse 27. And so while talking with him, Peter goes in, he finds the place is packed. I mean, it's, it's large gathering. And he says to them, this is how to win friends and influence people. He's obviously not read the book yet. Um, he says to them, you're well aware it's against our law. It's not technically against his law. Uh, it's how they interpreted the law. It wasn't illegal to see a Gentile or meet a Gentile or associate with a Gentile, but that's how they interpreted the Old Testament law. And so you're well aware it's against our law for a Jew to associate or visit a Gentile. Catch this. We're years after the resurrection. Jesus, I mean, Peter is still not hanging with Gentiles. He's not even going across the street to meet a Gentile. He's like, this is crazy. I know. You know, I know. We don't do this. There's a spiritual Berlin wall. We don't cross it. Like, we all know the rules here. He says, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So somewhere between the time of the vision and the time he gets to Caesarea, the light's going on, this vision's not just about food, it's about people. And that God's breaking down this spiritual Berlin wall. And so he says, God showed me that. So when I was, verse 29, I, when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. Can I ask why you sent me? Now Cornelius to tell his story. Uh, Cornelius just says, well, three days ago, I was at my house praying at this hour, three o'clock, so suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me. He said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer. Remember your gifts to the poor. And send a Joppa for Simon, who's called Peter. By the way, I love this. We see it all through Acts. Listen and follow. He does not know who Peter is. He doesn't know what the message is. God tells him, I'm going to do it. Because he does it, amazing things happen. All the way through Acts. So he's a guest of Simon, the house of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately. It was good of you to come. We're all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. We're just excited to learn, grow. We want to hear from God. And so Peter's going to begin to, to, to speak, and he's going to begin to lay out now the message of Jesus, who Jesus was, life, death, resurrection. But when he gets to that point in the message where Peter would normally b- begin to land the plane, so you need to repent, you need to give your life to Jesus, you need to trust him, you need to be baptized in the movement of Messiah, 
at that point, before he, right away he's getting to that point, God breaks in. And it's basically like God says, I'll take it from here. I'm not sure you're not going to screw this up. I don't, that's not really there. But we'll talk about this more next week. But God breaks in and he does the unthinkable, the unbelievable. He pours out the spirit on Gentiles. Now, to you and I, that may not seem like a big deal. But as we'll see next week, this is huge. The ultimate sign that someone has been accepted, part of God's family, has been born again, saved, ultimate sign is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And in the Old Testament, uh, the prophecy was when the Messiah would come, this would be one of the signs. And here's the thing, is that Peter, with his spiritual wall, and all the Jews with him, they assumed that the Spirit would be poured out on Jews only. And when the Spirit is poured out, which is the ultimate sign of the Messianic kingdom has come, their minds are blown. This cannot be happening. This is crazy. So he and his six Jewish buddies are astonished. We'll talk more about that next week. Um, and so Peter says, hey, who are we to stand in the way of God? If God's baptized them with a spirit, they're all speaking in tongues just like on the day of Pentecost. If, if God's baptized them with a spirit, who are we to keep them out of the kingdom? Let's baptize them into the, the movement of Jesus, the Messiah. And so, uh, and so next week, we'll, we'll, we'll we're gonna break that down. We'll see what the message is about. We'll see what happens, what happens when Peter goes back to Jerusalem and faces the music there. Um, and so it's going to be great next week because we focus on the coming of the Spirit. But uh, for today, I want to focus on this concept of spiritual paradigms. This is one of the most important concepts I think I could ever share with you in many ways. It's uh, you know, if you think of the last three weeks, we talked about conversion 101, what happens when a person comes to Jesus, supernaturally, organically. We talked last week about God's vision for our life is transformation. Not just to be saved, but to be transformed, to be changed like the Son. Become the people we're created to be. This follows up. The path to transformation always leads to the door of spiritual paradigm shift. And so today, I want to lead you on uh, uh, kind of a whole week, and we're going to talk about on this concept of spiritual paradigms and the role they play in our life, and what happens when God calls us out of our safety zone of a spiritual paradigm and into the danger of a new spiritual paradigm, just like Peter today. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called Spiritual Paradigms 101, Into the Danger, and I want to make five statements and just kind of walk through quickly. I won't spend a long time in any of these, but they'll kind of build on each other. Number one is spiritual paradigms, we all have them. So you, me, we all have spiritual paradigms. This a paradigm, and it doesn't matter whether it's in science or business or education or uh, relationships or whatever, finances, that we all have paradigms of how life works. And a paradigm is like a model. It's a pattern. It's a theory of how life works in a particular area. So like there are scientific paradigms. And they will change from, is, you know, is light a wave or is it, you know, a, a, like which is it? And as you see through science, is the earth, you know, is the earth the center of the universe or is the sun the center? And we see these paradigm shift that happens. So we all have paradigms in every area of life, but every one of us has spiritual paradigms. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian, Buddhist, uh, you're an atheist, doesn't matter. We all have spiritual paradigms. This is who God is. This is who I am. This is how a relationship with God works. This is kind of the path to life. We all have a paradigm, right? 
And here's the thing I want you to catch is that some of our paradigms are right and they lead us to life, but some of us, all of us have these, have part of our paradigms that are wrong. And those paradigms keep us from the life that God designed us to live. They, they keep us from being transformed. Now, Peter has his paradigms, and we're seeing one today, aren't we? Now, think of this. Would you call Peter, at this point, a mature Christ follower? You know, it's a trick question. No, I, yeah, right. I mean, we watched this transformation. He, he loves Jesus. He's followed Jesus. He's full of his spirit. He's done miracles. He, thousands have come to Christ. We call him a mature Christ follower. He's been transformed. Yet, even as a mature Christ follower, he has a major blind spot in his game. That there is something that he's not seen yet. He's grown up as a Jew. It's the way he's been trained. He's assumed that it will always be this way. And today we're seeing him go through a major paradigm shift that's going to be a key to his growth and his personal transformation, but catch this, also to his impact in the whole movement, right? And so there's been times when God leads us through paradigm shifts, okay? Let's go to number two. The second principle is that spiritual paradigms are hard to change. Now, this is true of paradigms in any field. Think back to your science class. Think of when we move from the earth is the center of the universe to the sun is the center. Remember that with Galileo? Huge fight over that, right? Um, when you move, I'm reading a book right now called, they're actually listening, but to a book called Team of Rivals, right? And it's a, a book on Abraham Lincoln. And uh, one of his opponents in, a pre, in the presidential kind of race or for president all, it's describing that one of his wives, because they would often die, because, you know, early death and one of his wives died, of this, of this other candidate, while this man was away because they let too much blood out of her. Now, this was not that long ago. But think of how medicine, the paradigm changes we've gone through where, hey, sickness is caused by bad blood, so let the blood out. Get rid of the bad blood. To germ theory, antiseptic theory, antibiotics. And I'm telling you, if you ever study medicine, you know that every time someone came, like the first guy with germ theory or antibiotics or inoculations, these kind of things, they all were seen as wackos. This was hugely resisted. So any time, doesn't matter business, education, whatever, that you go through a paradigm shift, it's always slow to catch on. And one of the reasons is there's something about us as human beings, and I want you to catch this, that we see what we are prepared to see. We see what we expect to see. And what a paradigm does is it not only explains life, but it kind of puts blinders on to any evidence outside the paradigm. And so any evidence that would suggest that, hey, the world is round, it's like, are you crazy? Look, it's flat. Any evidence that would suggest otherwise, you tend to reject because it doesn't fit in your paradigm. This happens spiritually, too. Now, here's what's crazy. So here's, here's, uh, here's Peter's paradigm, right? He's got these circumcision. We're going to always be doing food laws. We're always going to be doing Sabbath. He's kind of assuming that, right, because of how he's been raised. And he's assuming that this separates them from the Gentiles because the Gentiles are the, uh, uh, not God's people, and the Jews are God's people. That's his assumption, 
But catch this, there are a lot and a lot of prophecies in the Old Testament that say that God will one day bring Gentiles into his kingdom. But somehow all that word of God evidence had not penetrated the minds of the early church yet. And let me tell you how crazy this gets. I want you to think back to Acts chapter 1 where Jesus leaves, ascends into heaven. And remember what he says, I want you to go into all of the world and make disciples of what? Every nation. Guess what the word is for nation in Greek? It's the word Gentiles. The, the word, in Greek, the word nations and Gentiles, same word. Just based on the, you know, based on the pastor, you translate one another. So Jesus said to go into all the world and make disciples, but here's how, because of Peter's paradigm that, the, that there's God's people and then there's everyone else, because of that, here's how he heard it. Go into all the creation, all the world, and share the good news of Messiah with all your fellow Jews who have been dispersed throughout the world. That's what Jesus said. That's what he heard. And so many times uh, in our life, it's like what, what happens is spiritual par- uh, parents are very hard to change because usually, as we'll see later, spiritual paradigms are based on the word of God. As Christians, if you're a Christ follower, the reason we believe, there's a verse somewhere that says it. We've been taught a certain way. There's been scripture that's backed that up. But what we've missed is all kinds of other scripture that would help understand the bigger picture of that. So it's very hard to to change. Uh, Number three. The third principle is that new, new spiritual paradigms are scary. Now, when God comes and begins to lead us out of an old paradigm into a new, it's very often scary. Um, think of some of you here that maybe that you grew up in a Catholic church, and then after a series, whatever, God eventually led you here. It's kind of scary, stepping into a non-Catholic church, isn't it? Um, you grew up in a church that you could only read the King James Bible. Any other version was wrong. Can you remember back how traumatic it was when you bought a different version? Like, am I losing the faith, right? That there's something very traumatic, and we see this in Peter's life. This is a very scary day, a couple days for Peter. He's grown up as a Jew. He thinks he understands Jesus and what it means to love Jesus and follow Jesus. He has a paradigm. He's got a kind of whole vision of the world and all vision of the Messiah of the kingdom and how this whole thing's going to work out. And all of a sudden, God is suggesting you may be wrong on all that stuff. It shakes you at the core. It is very scary, and it's scary for two reasons. Number one, you're afraid of being disloyal to God. You're afraid of being deceived. You're afraid of getting off track spiritually. If I don't follow what I've been taught, that what if I'm leaving God? And it's very scary. But secondly, it's really scary because there are almost always consequences, or often consequences. If you change spiritual paradigms, it's often going to be a change in your life. And this will be a big change for Peter. It's going to change not only what he eats. Good news, he can eat the BLTs. But uh, not only to change what he eats, it's going to change his whole social relationship. And catch this, it's going to change the movement of Jesus. And it's going to change his relationship with the Jews back in Jerusalem. Because you think they're going to take this lying down? 
Did you win in the house of Gentiles? Did you associate with Gentiles? Did you lose your mind? And we're going to see next week when he goes back, this is not going to go well. At least at first. And so if you have one spiritual paradigm and some issue and you change that, the Holy Spirit changes that, guess what? Your community, your spiritual community you're part of, they may reject you or you may feel you're uncomfortable there. You're no longer one of us, you see? There's a cost. And because of that, because we want to be faithful to God and because of the consequences of a new paradigm, that we're often slow. It's really hard. It's scary. So let me give you just some uh, examples. I want to get real practical. I just want to give you two or three examples. And these are only meant as examples. We could go on. I could go 15, 20. We just go on till 1 o'clock and then go out for ham. But I mean, uh, <laughs> but, um, but I, I think you'll, get, you'll catch it. If I just give you a couple of specific, you'll, you'll catch it and you can apply it into your own life. Um, let's say you grew up in a church that was very legalistic. Now, let me define what I mean by legalism. Legalism is we add to God's word, okay? So I don't mean that you take the Bible seriously. Sometimes people say, you're so legalistic. And the Bible says, don't sleep with someone outside your spouse. It's like, that's not being legalistic, that's obedient, you know? Uh, legalism is where we add to God's word, right? And so... Uh, let's say you grew up in a legalistic church, and so there was all these man-made rules, but you didn't really know they were man-made because they were justified by the Word of God. So the man-made rule was Christians should never drink, or the man-made rule was you only should use the King James Version of the Bible, or the man-made rule was you shouldn't hang out with, uh, you should never go to a bar because sinners are there, right? like whatever. Okay. Um, and so you could, and now that's always going to be backed up with the Word, Right? It's like people aren't just going to make up the rules and say, yeah, I just decided to make this up. They're going to say, hey, the Bible says love not the world. They're going to say the Bible says avoid the appearance of evil. And they say, and because of that, then this is how that applies. Much like God had not said to Israel, don't associate with Gentiles. He said, don't marry Gentiles. He didn't say don't associate with Gentiles, but they had interpreted that to me. You should never have a meal or you should okay? And so let's say you've been brought up that way. And let's say the Holy Spirit begins to work in your life and say, you know what? A lot of these rules are man-made, and they're, they're binding you. They're holding you back. They're keeping you from the freedom that I came to give you in your life. And the Holy Spirit begins leading you that way. What happens the first time you take a drink? And by the way, this is not an advertisement for drinking. I think there's a lot of good reasons why some people choose not to drink. I think the Holy Spirit sometimes leads us not to drink for a season or for a life. I think some people come from a background they shouldn't. There's some things we don't do it for other reasons. So are you really clear with me? I'm not, I'm saying, but what I'm saying is by illustration, the first time you take a drink, how's that going to go for you? I can tell you it's going to be hard inside. You're going to be struggling. Like, is this really okay? Am I sure? Okay, whatever. Uh, if you go out and buy a new international version Bible, uh, you start hanging out with friends from work that are not believers, you start breaking any of the man-made rules, you're going to have some angst inside of you. It's not going to be easy because you've been taught for so long that this means loving God. On top of that, what happens if you're in that same little legalistic church, and you're, or maybe it's a big legalistic, even more worse, but uh, anyway, uh, you're in that big legalistic church, and you start doing that, what happens? It's like pretty soon people aren't going to hang with you. 
you're reading the wrong, like you're going off the deep end here. You're reading the wrong, you, like what? You have a beer in your fridge? Like, are you kidding me? You went out to, you know, with this, this place after work for drinks with the people from work. And, and all of a sudden, your community is going to separate from you. Are you with me? So this is, can be very scary. Let me give you another example. Uh, uh, let's say, like in the Christian community, you have this spectrum about when it comes to like miracles, right, or sign gifts, or things like spiritual gifts that, like prophecy, uh, gifts of knowledge, um, healing, tongues, interpretation. Like you, have a, you have a spectrum. Some Christians believe all those gifts went out in the first century with the apostles, um, or after the word of God was finished. And some, they're like, no, every, this miracle, a miracle a day keeps the devil away. Like, it always should expect a miracle. Uh, and so, and, uh, and so, so on this end, no, God never heals anyone, right? Maybe through doctors, but not, you don't pray for healing. You don't anoint people. Well. On this end of the spectrum, it's like, no, you should never be sick. Jesus died for you. By his stripes, you're healed. But if you're sick, you just claim your healing. And the only reason you wouldn't be healed is your lack of faith. You know, sucks for you. So, um, <laughs> so these are the two extremes. Now, here's what I'm going to if either one of those, you want to move away from either one of those extremes, maybe God shows up in a vision to you. Maybe you go forward to a meeting and you start speaking in tongues. Maybe a friend does. Maybe that you have a, a friend who's working overseas and they're super credible and they're healing people. And all of a sudden, this is your paradigm and you're like, maybe I've got this wrong. Or you're over here and you pray and you fast and you lay hands on your friend who's got cancer and they still die. And you start going, maybe that's wrong. I think we really did it. And so the Holy Spirit starts to awaken a new paradigm in you and you start changing positions. I guarantee you, it's going to be scary on the inside because you're feeling like you're denying the faith or moving away from the truth. You don't want to do that. You're afraid of being deceived. And the other side, you're uh, afraid of being rejected by your community if you change your position. Are you with me? So what I want you to catch is that whenever we go through a spiritual paradigm shift, it's often scary. And if you've been, been through some, you know what I'm talking about. Okay? Now, number four. This is really important, and this kind of balances out a lot of what I've said so far, for those of you getting nervous. <laughs> mm. Is that new spiritual paradigms must be tested. And this is incredibly important because just because something is new doesn't mean it's true. And there are always going to be people in our lives, and the New Testament's full of this, that come along and say, hey, you've got it partially right, but God is revealing new truth. Happens all the way through the New Testament called false teachers. It happens today. I think in the last few years, for example, that there was kind of a, a there was a, a big book and coming out uh, that was kind of within Christian evangelical circles um, that uh, uh, said, you know what, um, this whole teaching about hell, we've had it wrong all these years, kind of really not hell. Right? It's a new teaching. It's a new paradigm. Right? So they're, they're, what they're saying is that, hey, we've had it wrong, kind of like with Peter. We got new truth being revealed, and here's where we go. You see that in cults. This is the claim of Islam. Islam says, hey, there's a lot of truth in the Bible, but they had some things wrong. But through Muhammad and the special revelation that he had in the cave from an angel, that uh, now we know the truth. Here's the true path. It's what Mormons claim, 
right? The, the, hey, there's Bible's good. We're going to read our Bible. But uh, Joseph Smith had this uh, encounter with an angel, a golden plate, special glasses, and now we know more of the truth. And so to be really, it's just like Peter, that we had some of the truth, but we need to step into this new deal. Right? Um, in our culture right now, we're going through a major paradigm shift in our culture in terms of sexuality, aren't we? What's normal, what's abnormal, what's good, what's bad, right? And so even within the church of Jesus, this is already starting to happen. That the people come and say, I think we had it wrong all these years. We've interpreted the Bible wrong. And so it's kind of like Peter. And so we need to shift, right? So the point is, is just because something is new doesn't mean it's true. And so anytime we think the Holy Spirit is leading us into a new paradigm, whether it's theologically or whether it's uh, relationally or financially or our priorities or uh, the way we approach our career or probably approach relationships, that we always need to step back and say, this is what the Holy Spirit seems to be leading me, but is it true? And the way we measure that is by going back to the Word to say, does this agree? Is this a better explanation of what I've always understood? Yeah, the Word says... The word says, love not the world and don't have any appearance of evil. Yes, the word says that. Okay, does that mean not drinking alcohol? And you go back to the word and you say, well, wait a second. This very first miracle, which is kind of making a statement, is Jesus turns 150 gallons of water into wine. And it's the good stuff. Right? Um, <laughs> And in that context, the steward, the head of the banquet, says, wait a second. Hey, this is not how banquets go. They last for seven days, by the way, these Jewish feasts, uh, wedding feasts. This is not normally the, they bring out the, the good wine first while you're not under the influence. And then after you're under the influence a little bit and your, your taste buds are not as clear, we bring out the bad stuff. But you've reversed it. You've saved the good stuff for last. And so you start saying, hey, well, maybe this paradigm about never drinking alcohol, maybe that doesn't really fit. Maybe there's a better explanation. Do you see what I'm saying? So we go back to the word and we say, and, and what's interesting is this is exactly what the early church is going to do. I'm going to watch this unfold. Uh, this issue of Gentiles coming to faith, coming to kingdom, Messiah's kingdom, and what does a... Gentile need to be due to be saved, this is not going to go away. This is not like a one-time vision the Holy Spirit comes. That solves it. This is going to be a big issue. And we're going to come to it again in chapter 15. When it's become such a big issue, the whole church is going to have a major church council in Jerusalem. And they're going to get together to say, what is God saying? And they're going to bring out the evidence. Here's what happened with Peter and Cornelius. And here's what's happening with the Apostle Paul and Barnabas as they're sharing the message that Gentiles can be saved without circumcision, without following the law, and God's blessing that, and miracles are being done, and there's evidence. But the last piece of evidence is James is going to pull out the Bible, and James is now the leader of the Church of Jerusalem at this point, and James is going to say, you know what, we've heard all the evidence, but you know what, this whole thing that Gentiles coming in the kingdom without being circumcised and all this... He says, you know what? This agrees with what the prophets have said. And what they do is they go back and they recapture the Old Testament. They, they had the part about separation, right? 
what they had missed was all the passages about the one-day Gentiles coming into the kingdom. And so as they went back to the word, it was like, okay, we were partially right, but there's a better paradigm here, you see? And this new paradigm that Peter is being led by the Spirit and Paul and uh, Paul and Barnabas and the miracles and the, the Spirit coming out, it all lines up with what God has said all along. So God's not like changing his mind. This was his vision all along. We just misunderstood. And this is what happens when we move into a spiritual paradigm, a new spiritual paradigm. It's not like God's changing his mind. It's like we are just growing up spiritually and seeing more clearly. And every time that happens, it leads to more freedom in our life. And that's the fifth principle. The fifth pr- pr- principle is that spiritual paradigms, new, or true spiritual paradigms, lead to freedom. If you've got the right one, it will lead to freedom. Now, we see this in Peter's life, that Peter has a very small worldview, doesn't he? Very restricted. God's, Yahweh is God. He sent his son, Jesus, uh, Yeshua. He sent, him for the, he sent him for Israel. There's going to be a Jewish kingdom. It's a small vision. When the Holy Spirit leads him into this new paradigm, it's going to blow his world up. It's going to expand his world. And what we're going to learn is that the Messiah is not just for Israel. Messiah is to bring all of creation under the leadership, healed and restored under its true king. It's a whole new level of freedom. It's a whole new level of beauty, of symmetry. It's a, it's a much better story that God is telling. It's so much bigger. It's so much better. And whenever God is leading you, if the Holy Spirit is leading you into a new paradigm, and it's a true paradigm, one of the ways you'll know is life gets better. That there is more freedom, there is more power, there's more change, there's more transformation, there is more joy, because he's come to set you free. Now, I want to take you to two passages of Scripture that I want to tie together, then add a third real quickly to tie up this last point. The first one, I want you to actually turn in your Bibles. It's the references on your note sheet, but not the verse. It's John chapter 8. It's so key. It's so critical. I want us to, to see it. I want you to mark it up in your Bible. Uh, to me, it's one of the most important passages in all the Bible, one of the most important things that Jesus ever said. It's in John chapter 8. And uh, Jesus is talking to some Jewish people. Of course, he's ministering to almost exclusively Jews in Israel and who had just believed in him. They'd come to follow him. And so... Uh, he says something very profound. Verse 31, he says, uh, to the Jews who just believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching. Now, in the Greek, hold is the word meno, which means to remain. So it's hold on to, you stick with it. You, notice you continue to follow my teaching. Okay? The word for teaching in Greek is the word word. So if you hold on to my word, you hold on to my teaching, you live in my teaching, you follow my teaching. Right? He says, first of all, that means you're really my disciple. So what's the mark of a disciple? We've been talking about disciples. What's the mark of a disciple? What's someone who holds on and follows the teaching of Jesus? You don't hold on to follow the teaching of Jesus. You're not a disciple. You might see yourself, but you're not really a disciple. He says, that's step one. And he says, then, uh, he says, then, at that point, you will know the what? The truth. And the truth will set you free. Now, watch, watch this, how this goes. He says, step number one, you've come to believe me. Great. He says, now here's the key to your growth. You need to hold on to my teaching. You need to stick with my teaching, listen to my word, follow my word. He said, and if you do that, then it will lead you to truth. Your eyes will be open, the true path to life. He said, and the truth will lead you to freedom. You see that? See how that works? Well, what happens if we don't listen to his teaching? Well, none of that happens. 
What happens if we don't pay attention to the word as we go through these new paradigms? None of that happens. It's the word and sticking with his word and going deep in his word and listening to his word and following his word that sets this whole mousetrap in motion. Now, uh, the second verse is there in your note sheet. We're going to tie these together. Romans 12, 2, famous verse. Paul says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. In other words, don't think, act, behave, don't approach life the way this world does, but be what? Transformed, okay? So that word, there's our word, transformation 101, be transformed, be changed. In the Greek, the word is metamorpho. It's where we get our word metamorphosis from. Metamorphosis, remember from science, the process of change. Caterpillar goes through to become a butterfly. Tadpole becomes a frog. So he says, so he says, don't do life like you used to do, the way the world does it. He says, be transformed, be changed. How does that happen? He says, by the what? The renewing of your mind. I'm calling that today paradigm shift. It's where we we our mind is renewed. We go through these shifts. It may be our marriage. It may be in our finance. It could be prim- our, our, uh, our priorities. It could be uh, how we see marriage, raising kids. It could be anything. But there is a renewal process that happens, and as our minds are renewed, we go through paradigm shifts, we are transformed. And he says, then he says, then at that point, okay, after that's happened, or as that's happening, you'll be able to test and approve. I like the word demonstrate, experience. You'll begin to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So as God has a will for your life, it's good, it's pleasing, it's perfect. But in order to experience it, you have to go through paradigm shift, transformation of your mind. And how does that happen? It happens by the word. It's because of the word that leads us to truth, that sets us free. So what happens in our life is the word and the spirit work together as the spirit leads us. As we go back to the word, we check out our paradigms. They all, it all works together then for a transformation, and that leads then to freedom. And so if you look at the next verse, 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says, the, the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom. So God's vision for your life, not just conversion, it's transformation. How does transformation happen? Renewing in the mind, paradigm shift. And, uh, and so and what, here's what we can say. When you go through these paradigm shifts in any of your life, it's often going to be hard. It very frequently be scary. We always need to check it out. But it will lead to freedom. Now, so here's the question I have for you. For some of you, this message may not even be for today. I'm so glad you came. But it's for six months from now. But for many of us in this room right now, you may be going through a paradigm shift right now. It might be about how spiritual growth works. Your part and the Holy Spirit's part. How do those two work out? It could be about finances. How do you approach your finances? How do you approach your spending, your giving, your saving, whatever? For some of you, it could be relational gifts. That you're Christians and you're married, but you don't have a very good marriage. And, but you would describe it as a Christian marriage. Because it's kind of like your parents' marriage and they were Christians. And God wants to say, 
He wants to change your view of what it means to be a Christian husband or a Christian wife. There's a paradigm shift that has to happen. It could be priorities. It could be anything. But here's what I want you to catch. Paradigm shifts are critical for our spiritual growth. They're critical for our transformation. When they happen, don't be surprised if they're hard. Don't be surprised if they're scary. Always need to test them. But when the Holy Spirit says, don't be afraid, go downstairs, there are three guys and go with them. It's when we listen and follow that our world changes. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we're just excited about what you're doing here in our church, in our lives, where you're leading us week by week. And God, we are all a mixture of truth and error. Every one of us in this room, there are certain things, ways we see you that are right, that lead to life. There are certain ways that are wrong. We just don't even know that they're wrong yet. We don't even know where to look. We need your spirit, just like with Peter, to show us where we're wrong. And so, God, we pray that you'd open our eyes, lead us to freedom, give us wisdom and discernment, lead us to life. We thank you that you've won, that through your life, death, and resurrection, you have won, that you are a good, good father. And then as our father, you will lead us into truth. You've given us your spirit to lead us into truth to transform us. We pray as you bring our gifts and our offerings, you'd meet us now as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship. The Apostle Paul would later write in Galatians, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And therefore, don't any longer be slaves to the old long. And this is what Peter is discovering. Peter doesn't know this yet. Peter doesn't know the freedom that he has in Christ yet. God is leading him and still teaching him. And he's teaching the whole movement of Jesus, what it means. It's a beautiful thing. And that's what the Holy Spirit does in our lives too. He takes us from where we're at and we go through our huge paradigm shift, we first come to Jesus. But then it's one after another as he renews our minds, changes us, transforms us, and leads us in the freedom for which we were born again. And uh, the key to that whole process is the Holy Spirit. He's the one who brings that conversion. He's the one that transforms us. He's the one that empowers us, opens our mind. And so next week, topic on the table is Holy Spirit 101. As we continue this four-week run, as to see how this process of transformation uh, works. And so next week, hope you can be with us. If you can't be here, be sure to podcast. Prayer over here for anyone who needs it on the right-hand side. I'll see you next week. God bless. Be transformed. <laughs>